Uh, so how do we start? We start, uh, hi, <laughs> welcome to Gross Anatomy. Uh, I'm Dr. Jason Cohen, and today I'm joined only by... Lauren Taylor. Yes, because Jackie is away in Germany. She's in Germany. She's in Germany <laughs> for 10 days. Um, so welcome to Gross Anatomy, where we discuss the sights, smells, and sounds of medicine. And the, the whole reason why we're here is to kind of either debunk myths, talk about... Uh, ongoing health issues, medical issues in media, and also to deal with those questions that I get from my friends and family all the time. Is this real? Is that real? I saw this movie. Is this really happening? What's going on with this? But the other day, this kind of stemmed from a few days ago, but I went to a movie this week, this past weekend with my kids. We saw, actually totally unrelated, we saw um, Eighth Grade by the way. Okay, I don't Have you know seen it. it? No. It's, it's a little too real, but it, it, you know, about a girl in eighth grade, but that's not what we're here to discuss. Um, but the preview, one of the previews was this movie, Beautiful Boy, which is based on a true story, which is with Steve Carell and Timothy, <laughs> Timothy <laughs> Chalamet or Chalamet, Chalamet, Timothy yeah. Chalamet. And it's about a boy, um, a young boy uh, or young man with his uh, methamphetamine addiction and, and a father and son uh, journey uh, dealing with the son's methamphetamine addiction. And sure enough, just recently in the news um, was... Demi Lovato. Demi Lovato. Who actually had to be rushed to the hospital from her Hollywood Hills home, not far from here. I believe to a hospital, you know, Cedar sinai mm with with a, a drug overdose either it was initially reported it was heroin but it might have been oxycodone how do you say it oxycodone. some kind of oxy <laughs> yeah and uh so we thought that would be an interesting topic for today's discussion uh is the quote opioid epidemic or opioid problem um which seems like every day we hear, or every week we hear a new celebrity um, or a new movie related to drug addiction, or, or yeah, and the problems and the struggles, like the movie that you're talking about, Beautiful Boy. And America's declared war on um, the opioid crisis to some degree. Right, they're putting in new regulations, which seem to make it harder for patients who actually need pain medication, which was something I was going to ask you about. Well, that yeah ask <laughs> have you encountered that because obviously you deal with patients that are going through these really hard surgeries that do need pain medication yeah is it harder for them to get their actual prescription i i think there's a lot of problems i think with with um prescribing um narcotics in general so i think one of the problems is um i think to some degree um Believe it or not, I think it's unrelated to the problem. I think to some degree we under-medicate our patients pain-wise. That's, that's a little bit as an aside. I think we sometimes um, want our patients to tough it out and for fear of the drug addiction issue. I, okay. I see that a little bit. But, but patients who truly need uh, narcotics um, in the acute period after a surgery, after a procedure, I've definitely seen difficulty in patients getting those prescriptions filled. 
um, whether they'll they'll go to the pharmacy with their prescription and the pharmacy will say, no, we're out of stock after the patient's waited online, maybe go try this store. And I don't think, I think a lot of times the pharmacies may not actually be out of stock. I think mm. um, for whatever reason, they're afraid to prescribe these, give out these medications. Maybe for whatever reason, they don't necessarily trust the patients. Um, but I've seen patients have to go from pharmacy to pharmacy to try to just get a post-operative pain medicine. So while they're in pain and they can't call the pharmacy, the pharmacy cannot tell them over the phone. Is that correct? If they have it? Unfortunately, like most law. pharmacies will not say over the phone for fear. I don't know why. They won't say over the phone whether or not they have that medication in. When you go to a pharmacy, their sister pharmacy or their other affiliate, they'll say, Oh, yeah, I think if you go to so-and-so pharmacy, they should have it go ahead. Um, but I, I've, seen it, I've seen it firsthand. I've seen patients have trouble getting their pain medication. Luckily, at a lot of the hospitals where I work now, when I know I'm prescribing in the post, acute post-op period, when I know I'm going to prescribe something like Norco, which is uh, a, a narcotic plus Tylenol, I'll ask the pharmacy to fill it at the pharmacy so the patient leaves with the medication because I know all too often the patient may not get it right away and that's something that I've been doing. See I think feel like that's a side of the story you don't hear. Side of the story you don't hear for you sure. You just hear that like doctors are prescribing too many of these medications, people are getting addicted, but right. there's a whole other side right. to the story. And the other thing that, that nobody even discusses is um, not too long ago, we were able to phone in. We still could phone in non-narcotic prescriptions. You know, you could phone in an antibiotic, a blood pressure medicine. But now you are not allowed to phone in a narcotic um, or uh, an anxiolytic, you know, like um, Valium or Xanax or any of those medicines or Percocet or Norco because it's a, quote, triplicate and you, the patient needs to show up with an actual hard copy of the medicine. And what's never been discussed is, I, at least I feel that um, it was so much easier back in the day when you could phone it in. The patient would still have to show up with the hard copy or fax the hard copy of the prescription, but it was so much easier for the doctor to be able to take care of the patient by phoning it in. I think there might be a some component now, since you can't phone it in, since the doctor now has to write it or e-prescribe it and spend extra time. Mm -hmm. I wonder if the doctors, to some degree, are deliberately writing for more oh. of the pill. I, I don't know if anybody's looked uh -huh. at it, but a larger quantity so that they could don't have to be disturbed again to give the patient that next round of medicine. And I wonder if, to some degree, that's led to part of the problem. I have no part idea. Part of the addiction, like some of the patients take more than right. they should because they have it. So, yeah, so maybe they wind up with like 50 pills because the doctor doesn't want to have to deal with a refill and writing another right. prescription. I, I don't know. It's just a thought I had. Mm -hmm. um, that's probably totally idiotic, but just no, a thought sounds, I had. sounds like it would be yeah. correct. The only one thing I have noticed, even of myself, is with, with this, quote, opioid problem epidemic, so to speak, is... Whereas I used to possibly prescribe a larger quantity of pain pills to patients after surgery who I truly believe need it, I will now give a lesser amount. But I don't think that's necessarily because of the opioid addiction problem. I think it's just over time, patients have told me, you gave me 30 pills, I only needed two. Okay. So over the course of time, I personally have prescribed less and less to patients and occasionally I'll have to refill it, but I, I find just I'm more aware now of giving less. Mm -hmm.
Do you tell patients to, if they don't use the pills to, you know, throw them away? Do you ever give them specific instructions? I joke around with them and I say you should sell them on the black market, but <laughs> that's probably not the right thing to say. No, I've never, other than that joke, okay. um, I've never really addressed what to do with those narcotics. Um, but that's an interesting question too. I, I have said jokingly to some of my patients, if you don't use it, sell it on the black market. Well, what I'm interested in too is what do you learn um, as a doctor about pain management? Like, do you ever go to like new classes about pain management? Are, are doctors ever being retaught things about yeah. how to prescribe? Yeah. In our train, at least in my training, which seems like it was a million years ago, um, there was zero education about the actual management of pain in a patient. I think today we're more aware of it. Um, I'm not sure if in actual residency training there's still any true education on managing pain and how to dose and what medicines to give. We're definitely more aware of it. Um, and there are even specialties now, just pain medicine specialties and anesthesiologists help. There's a whole pain service that helps to manage patients after surgery, manage their pain. But I think the actual management of pain for patients, I think, is still not appropriate. I think one thing as a surgeon, we know for sure that pain medicine slows down intestinal function. So it causes constipation. So especially if we're operating on the bowels, on the intestines, one of the things that's going to keep a patient in the hospital longer and not allow the patient to be discharged is them not moving their bowels or getting distended and bloated and ultimately possibly vomiting and nausea. Um, and that's something we definitely want to avoid. So we've always wanted to avoid narcotics cause, as surgeons because we've always known that narcotic causes an ileus is the fancy word, a lack of moving of the that. intestines. Okay. And one thing I tell all my patients who I give narcotics to after surgery is you're going to be constipated. You do want to try to limit your narcotics because you're going to have constipation. And I already say you know, try to find the balance. We give, these days we're trying to do multi-modality pain medication where we're trying to give non-narcotic pain medicines, things like Advil, Motrin, Tramadol, which to some degree is a narcotic too, Ultram. Um, we're trying to give Tylenol. We're trying to give uh, other non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs to help decrease the need for narcotics. Mainly as surgeons, because we don't want uh, these patients to be constipated, which is a major complaint. Uh, and a lot of times after surgery, I'll get a phone call three to five days later. Patient the, from the surgery standpoint is great, but they're miserable because they can't poop, you know, and they just want to know what to do. And and automatically, we'll I'll start right from the beginning, even in pre-op discussion. I'll tell patients how to combat that, but. Did I answer your question? I don't know. Yeah. I think I kind of just rambled and got you did. lost. I am actually surprised that there isn't more training on pain management. So right now, it's just based on whatever the doctor prescribes. Yeah, a little bit. But we do have these pain service doctors, usually anesthesiologists, who help us manage the patients. Not all patients. You have to specifically request them. Okay. One of the problems, I think, with the pain service team is they're really only focused on taking care of the patient's pain while they're in the hospital with at least at this point in time, even we doctors, um, while the patient's in the hospital, um, we doctors don't necessarily think about, okay, we're giving them this in the hospital, how are we going to transition it appropriately so that 
they don't go home miserable on the one hand not getting enough medicine or they don't go home totally drugged out i don't think we've really been very good at transitioning patients to home one pet peeve of mine that's is in terms of the pain medicine after surgery is how we deliver the pain medicine. Do we give it by mouth? Do we give it by shots? Do we give it intravenously? Do we give a shot in the muscle? And it's very common that the pain medicine in the hospital is given intravenous. You give an intravenous through the vein, the pain medicine, um, the narcotic. And I hate that. And I, it's a pet peeve. I don't, I, I'm ignorant. I'm dumb. I don't have time. I haven't done a study. I haven't looked at a study. Maybe there are studies mm-hmm. for it. But to me, in my mind, giving someone an intravenous pain medicine on the floor of the hospital after that initial acute surgery doesn't seem like it's probably a great idea. Mm-hmm. Because just think, I've never got, you know, I've never shot up IV pain medicines, but I've seen enough movies and I've seen enough surgeries and, and I've done enough surgeries that as soon as you get that IV pain medicine, you feel great immediately. It takes quick effect. And certainly anyone who has the propensity or desire uh, or or tendency towards addiction is going to want that. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, it's okay to give intravenous pain medicine in the intensive care unit. It's okay to give intravenous pain medicine um, in the recovery room initially. But once you're out of that out of the initial intensive care or acute care, when you're on the floor, if you're not able to take stuff by mouth, give it to as a shot in the muscle. Don't give it IV right away because, in my mind, if you give it IV again, you're going to get a quick rush, a quick fix. Not only that, it's going to leave you faster, too. Whereas if you give it as a shot, if a patient's truly in pain, they should be willing to take a shot. If they're not in pain that much, then don't take the shot. But if you're in a lot of pain, take the shot. But it also takes a little bit longer to kick in. And lasts a little bit longer. And I think, and, and I wonder, and I think it'd be interesting to look at if somehow giving IV pain medicines to hospital patients might somewhat contribute to the opioid addiction a little addiction bit. Problem. And I don't know. I don't. I, th- I don't know. I, I think it might be worth looking at. So what? So if you think they're overregulating now, what do you think is the solution? Just, I mean, how are doctors regulated right now? Do people look at all the prescriptions that you write? To some degree, there is a little bit of that, and I think I even heard it on the radio either this, either this weekend or today, that there's some study where doctors are getting some feedback about the... Have you heard about this? No. Doctors are getting some feedback about the amount of narcotics they're writing, um, and it's not, it's not that they're getting in trouble or anything, but it's just to make them aware, and I think the doctors who are being notified and seeing what they write... I think they've shown that they're starting to write less. Okay. But I think uh, all too often I've seen patients on the floor just being given Tylenol and Advil, and they're in pain. Now, a lot of times that could be enough. Right. But I also think sometimes we under-medicate, and we're like, oh, you should be fine. A little pain is good. And I, I don't know the answer. Um, I know we don't have it. Yeah, I know. I can't figure out the answer either. Now that I know more to the other side of the story, I mean, it's obviously not doctors' faults. I mean, people are addicts. I mean, you're not going to be able to solve the addiction problem altogether. Right. I mean, we certainly know that when we do have patients who have are former addicts or current addicts, 
even the patients will say to us, the ones who are recovered will say, I don't want any narcotics, you know, and we'll oh, try to, and we'll, we'll try to get them through. I mean, for this acute surgery, they're on it and the initial post-op, but then getting them through the, the post-op period, we really try to manage these patients without narcotics. What a lot other, of them do okay. What are ways to manage it without narcotics? So there's Tylenol, okay. there, which is acetaminophen, and there are different and routes to fine. give that. Okay. Because it's not narcotic. Right. Uh, and then there's Advil or ibuprofen, Motrin, um, and then there's these other non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like things like Toradol or um, Celebrex. And there are other kind of nerve pain medicines that you could give as well. So we've had successes treating patients that way. Have you ever turned down a patient's request for pain medicine thinking that they were an addict? Like, yeah. Is there ways to tell? D definitely. Or sometimes we'll see patients sick in the hospital um, who come in with abdominal symptoms and complaints, and we eventually realize that they're just looking for pain medication or they've become so dependent on pain medication that they're having real pain, but the pain is from maybe the withdrawal of the pain medicine, or they're just their body's just so jacked up from being on pain medicine that they're having real pain, um, but you got to figure out another way to, to treat them. And, and yeah, there are times I've had patients who are not in that acute or, or you know, post-op period who say, Doc, I'm having pain, or a new patient will come to me saying, I'm in pain, what do I do? And I'll say, I'll give you some Tylenol, I'll give you some Advil, mm -hmm. um, or go back to the doctor who's kind of treating you and managing you. But I've, I see a lot of patients who are come in and are on oxycodone and Norco and Vicodin, and they've been on it for years by their doctors. And It's like house, that show where it's they can't like house. manage without it. Yeah. Or Nurse Jackie, or or it's interesting all these shows. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, and I think it'll be a whole other episode these days. Cannabis uh, is being used to some degree very successfully, especially in states like Florida, where it's much more regulated. Here, not as much, but it, it cannabis is really being used to try to. Um, be a substitute and wean patients off of narcotics, and then they'll be weaned off the cannabis. And there are some successes, and I strongly believe oh, so in it. Switch them from like oxy to cannabis. Like that. It's not so much their switch, but they slowly will start certain cannabis pot regimens. Okay. And the patients find that they don't necessarily need as much of the narcotics, and they're slowly able so, to get themselves okay. in, off of the narcotics. I hadn't heard about that. I heard yeah. that it's like being used for people with seizures now it's being used for all that but but one of the big things now is trying to get chronic pain patients off of narcotics so today we're lucky to have a good friend of mine dr peter pressman uh who i've known now for roughly about 15 16 maybe 17 years uh pete's had an uh, interesting and uh um, exciting journey and before we talk about Pete at all, I'm just going to flat out say to my buddy Pete, Dr. Peter Pressman, I'm going to say, Pete, is there a health, is there an opioid crisis? Welcome, Pete. <laughs> Yo, Jace. Um, a pleasure to be here. Um, 
Um, I'm not sure there's an opioid crisis. That's why I asked the question. Uh, I'm not sure at all. Right. Um, I think that um, I think it, the issue has become political and emotional more than it's uh, a medical issue. Clearly, uh, we have an influx of illegal drugs in this country that's uh, tremendous. Illegal fentanyl, uh, illegal uh, opiates are coming across virtually every place they can come across. Um, and, and that's been very well documented. I also think that um, I also think that the the CDC has made uh, some some significant accounting errors because a lot of the deaths that are associated with opiates um, are, are 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 sort of agglomerated into one number. So all the illegal opiate deaths are are uh, are one are, are one piece of the pie. Um, many of the opiate deaths, uh, in fact, and I don't have the exact numbers at my fingertips right now, but probably at least a third of the deaths that uh, have been recorded on a yearly basis are opiates plus benzodiazepines. Um, the the response, the the political response to these deaths, which are admittedly very very frightening. Um, may be um, may represent the pendulum swinging in the wrong direction. The DEA now has statutory power to restrict the production of prescription opioids, um, and um, there are a number of medical centers around the country who have actually reported shortages for their post-op patients. Right. And, and I think this is something that that is very, very concerning and represents this wild pendulum swing in the wrong direction. Um, certainly, um, there are there are criminal guys out there with MDs who are, you know, who are essentially doing the pill mill kind of thing. And they're generally uh, outed fairly quickly by the Department of Justice one way or another and, and, take, and, and taken into custody and they stop doing what they're doing. And, but there are also plenty know. of docs who, not so much anymore, but there used to be a patient was on pain meds and the patient would come in and say, Doc, I'm, I'm sure, out of my prescription, sure, I need sure. more, and they'd be more than happy to just write it rather I, than address I have seen why that. they're... I, 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 that's I took pretty over, common. I took over a practice right. years ago where where that was a huge problem, right. and I was faced with having to get people off scary right. amounts of right. stuff. But, you know, and, and certainly, that's, certainly that's, that's less of a problem now because of the... You know the the vigilance of all the law enforcement agencies and the surveillance that I believe has made many, even subspecialists who deal with chronic pain, like the oncologists, um, uh, to be very very frustrated because they're not able to prescribe um, adequate or infrequent. Uh, adequate doses of, of pain meds for people who desperately need them. Patients, terminally ill patients, irreversibly ill patients with, with terrible chronic pain, um, and surgical patients, as you know full well, who, who need short courses of opiate analgesics, uh, generally do very well with, with prescription drugs that are carefully tailored. This is, this is an extremely important point. Um, there are thousands and thousands of examples of that that occur every single day. 
not everybody who's exposed to opiates becomes becomes addicted. So good, you're leading me to the question of why we're having you as our expert. So in addition to the fact that you're just an awesome guy, an amazing doctor, uh, a researcher, a scientist, uh, a nutrition expert, um, you also have a personal story. I do. With opioids. I do, um, and I'm happy to share it. So so I, uh, I was a, uh, a medical officer in the United States Navy. Um, so some people, just to, uh, as an aside, some people, when they go through a midlife crisis, they get a Porsche, they get a this, they get a that. Pete decided to join the military. Well, I didn't have the money for a Porsche. Uh, <laughs> yeah, internists don't make as much as they used to. So, you know, the Porsche was a little bit out of reach. Um, I was disillusioned uh, with my practice. I was disillusioned with my research. I wanted to do something that I thought was meaningful, and I had an old friend uh, who was um, a superstar in the Navy, and he had been at me and at me to come talk to them about Navy medicine. He said, you'll be able to take care of people who desperately need your help, and you'll be able to do some creative things and some great teaching and and expeditionary medicine and all kinds of places. So I joined the Navy, and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. At what age? Sorry. Um, Oh, I was probably, what was I, 50, maybe? 48? Yeah, late 40s. Late 40s, maybe. Late 40s. So I was the geriatric camp counselor at Officer Basic, and it was great. It was terrific. I was deployed very quickly to Guantanamo, where they needed an old gray head, you know, with a little bit of wisdom and a little bit of competence to take care of some of the worst people on the planet. And also a lot of people who were, uh, frankly, developmentally disabled kids who were in the wrong place at the wrong time. So I did that as senior medical officer. But I wanted to do something more rather than do incarceration medicine. So I ended up um, volunteering for a task force that was doing nation building in the Middle East and in Central Asia. I ended up in Baghdad and then in Afghanistan. And while in Afghanistan... Um, I did what a nice old Jewish boy should not do. I jumped out of an airplane with 70 pounds of oral rehydration solution on my back um, into, a, into a mountainside village outside of Kabul, and I crushed three of my cervical vertebrae. So I crushed basically my neck. And, and being, the, being the dedicated military officer that I was uh, and being legitimately excited about taking care of these kids who were dying of simple dehydration from diarrhea, um, I kept going and managed my pain, uh, which was significant, with um, oral opiates, with hydrocodone. Um, I refused, like many of my colleagues in the service, to admit to any problem at all. Um, I, when I was no longer able to casually get small doses of hydrocodone from my medical colleagues, I took to writing prescriptions for deceased people and collecting them myself. Pretty cool. It was very clever, actually. So, um, wait, so we don't have to get into all the crap that happened after, but no. So, my question is: is is that part of this opioid crisis that they're talking about in in the states? You think? Do you no. think you're a no. victim of the no. opioid crisis? No, I'm a victim of my own bad judgment. Well, um, isn't everybody? 
No, I don't think so. Um, Not I, your I, bad judgment. I, I know. But, uh, I, no, but, I, no, I don't. I don't think so. I think it's very different. I I used progressively higher doses of opiates um, because of tolerance to control my pain and to remain operational because, but because this, you had access to it. it so well, what I had they, access, right. right? I had access, and, and and isn't that thought to be part of the problem that there's too much access to opioids? I I think you have to be very specific here because I think that. I mean, like, what if they had only given you non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for your pain, or what well, if I opioids weren't if, available? It, it, and all then, you could... then I would have had to go to surgery, right? Because I was, I would be unable to function. Right. The reason that I maintained that escalating habit was because of withdrawal, not because I loved it, not because I got high on it, because I didn't. Um, I, I ultimately took it in order to avoid withdrawal, which was hell, absolute hell. And I was going to be dysfunctional because I tried it several times. And it, you, can't, you can't fake withdrawal because it's a, it's a profound physiologic um, uh, syndrome that affects virtually every system in your body. So I couldn't fake it. And ultimately, that's why I had to come clean. How were you able to, to detox then? I took myself to out to an inpatient detox to the best I could find in the United States. And what do they I, do? What is it like? Well, basically, um, uh, do they just throw you in a room with a blanket? No, no, no. It's what, not like in the movies. Not like in the movies. Um, what you get, obviously, is is a is is an opiate which. Um, which only tickles the receptors for a short period of time and doesn't produce a high, but allows you to taper without withdrawal. So you taper. What did I get? Um, um, gosh, you know, I, I think I got Suboxone. Okay. Yeah, um, with with progressive um, decrements in dosing that. You know that that basically minimize the withdrawal. symptoms of withdrawal, and it takes it takes a good solid month to do it. And I was inpatient for a month, and I went to the best place that I could find after consulting people I trusted, and and then I went and had my spine repaired. And what do you do post op for pain? Opiates, absolutely, and. I took them appropriately because I was fixed. Right. And all I needed to do was control the, uh, the pain from the surgical wound, and it was, it was, it was not an issue. So, it, I mean, it, it was... It, 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 and I think, that, I think that is representative of a lot of people. I think the problem, the problem for me was, was having to signal my bad judgment... Uh, my, the fact that I was not willing to get definitive care for my injury because I knew that that would take me out of the ball game altogether. Right. But I think so, that's what most people do when they're on opiates. They're they're treating some other illness, whether it's some kind of pain or some mental illness or something. They're taking the opiates for something. Yes, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. But I think there's a difference. Um, there's a substantive difference as well as a phenomenological difference between between dependence to avoid withdrawal and um, addiction that that is the result of, of self-medication for an emotional issue, for a clinical psychiatric issue, or for a failure of self-soothing. So in other words, 
instead of dealing with a problem the right way, so I go and eat a, a quart of Hagen does ice cream. That's a that's a arguably a a maladaptive example of self-soothing. Um, going out and and running twenty miles might also be maladaptive. So I, I think you know a, a moderate and 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 adaptive coping style is is what most people seem to be able to achieve. You ask for help, you get assistance, you do things in moderation. You don't take it upon yourself to cope in some extreme fashion. And I think the, the, the defective coping or the defective self-soothing is probably representative of, of either social problems or psychiatric problems that are inadequately recognized and, and managed. And I think that's a different problem altogether. Because yeah. those guys get relief from taking this drug, at least initially, right. you know, and then they get hooked into higher and higher kinds of um, um, more potent and, and, and so you didn't and enjoy. Well, I hated it. I hated it. You didn't enjoy it at all because I, I think I talked about it. I had had a, a procedure years ago, and I took some yeah. like Norco, yeah, uh, yeah. post-op, sure. And I still remember how amazing I felt yeah. hanging out at yeah. Jerry's Deli with my wife and mother-in-law yeah. on the Norco. Yeah. And I deliberately, after that, said, okay, today's the only day I'm well, taking think, it because I feel uh, too good. Look, I know so many people that aren't even prescribed them post-medical treatment that take them just for that reason because right. it's fun. It's, they're becoming like social drugs right. that people do at parties just it, to have fun. For the, for the, first, for the first three days, yeah. Yeah, but then, but then, because of tolerance, that that goes away very, very quickly, yeah. mm. very quickly. And and sure, any normal person, you know, I mean, I remember distinctly um, post op in the recovery room, feeling like, you know, yeah, you know, you know, you, so you're, you're feeling good. This mm. is the good stuff, but 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 that's appropriate, right? I mean, that when you're when you're coming out of a significant surgery, that's a big deal. And, right. and you've got to have adequate pain control for recovery. So we know that. And, and we, we understand the, the side effects all across the board. I mean, you know, you can't pee, you can't poop, you, right. you know. But, but we, we deal with that and we, we titrate accordingly and things generally go very well. But I think, I think you have to make a distinction between between the different kinds of addiction or the different the different motivations for for people who get stuck and you know and and you know one of the problems i had um i mean i'm you know i can walk the walk and talk the talk because because i did a lot of of, of psychiatry and clinical psych training before i went to medical school um but and I, because you're nuts and because i'm very crazy <laughs> right but yeah but but I'll tell you, I, I, I have a real hard time. I have a very hard time of my own heart, um, you know, doing the, doing the rehab thing and the, you know, the groups and everything else. And until I, until I fell into the right group, um, which I utilized for a couple of years, which was a group of professionals and, 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 you know, former military guys and and political guys. You wouldn't believe, you know, some of the people who have had to crawl back from the edge. And so I felt a little less like I was buying into the whole 
Um, Touchy feel, you feel good. Yeah, I mean, it's like you, you don't want to be a professional, uh, you know, a professional addict for the rest of your life. And and I I, I must say I, I I didn't like it. I resented it. I was uncomfortable with it. And 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 I think part of the reason was that that it was from a different reason. It yeah. was from it was from a it was my problem was generated by terrible judgment. I made a very bad mistake, but it wasn't because I loved getting high. Right. So two final questions. One yeah, is, yeah. Um, so you know, ultimately you lost your medical license, and now I yeah, know you're, yeah. you're, um, you're working on getting it back. So where, yeah. where are you with that? How far away is well, that? How close are you to that? we're about to submit a final petition to uh, the medical board in the state of Maine. Um, Maine is a, is a place where I have lots of connections, and... And also, it's a place that's underserved, and hopefully, they will look kindly at you know what I've done in the last several years to sort of demonstrate health and productivity and and redemption. I, I believe in second chances. I always did, even before I needed one. <laughs> but <laughs> but I'm excited. I'm excited to be alive and, and healthy and still dangerous. That's great. Well, I wish you the best. Thanks for letting us interview you, Pete. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening, guys. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions on topics, please feel free to visit us online at www.grossanatomypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you guys. And of course, subscribe to our podcast. We have it both on iTunes and SoundCloud. And yeah, thanks for tuning in.